you're reaching for your Bibles, which of course every person has, and opening up to James chapter 1, I want you to listen to this illustration um, because I think it's going to frame for us the imagery of the very serious topic that is before us, the path of temptation. I want you to picture what I experienced years ago as I was learning how to fish in a river down in Virginia near James River. It's called the Moray River, and it's surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains, beaver in the river, eagles flying overhead, uh, beautiful water that reflects the sun. You can see right to the bottom of it with all these rocky shelves, and the fish love to stay behind there. Now here I am, I'm fishing, I'm standing in the middle of this Moray River. Water is up to my hips, and I've got my Shimano ultralight rod and reel with my Rapala top floater lure. These lures, I've got two treble hooks on them. Each, each hook has three barbed hooks on them, front and back. And as I cast it straight out in front of me upstream, and what you do with these lures is you cast it out there, and then you twitch it for a little bit because it, it mimics an injured fish. And if nothing bites on it after about 10 or 15 seconds, you begin reeling it in and there's a plastic lip underneath the front of the lure and it, it resists the water, making the lure dive to about 12 or 15 inches as you reel it in, wiggling back and forth. There was one such cast that I've caught the largest smallmouth bass that I've ever caught. And you can see right through the water, it was utterly clear, and you could see as this lure was wiggling and coming over the top, he was hidden in this rocky shelf, and as the lure went past him, you could see him begin to follow the lure. And about another 10 feet, he launched his attack. And instead of biting on fin and, and bone, he bit on plastic and steel hooks that we couldn't disengage from, and I brought him in. About four hours later, he's sitting on a barbecue grill being grilled by my friend and I. I want you to think about that illustration because James very much uses this type of imagery as he teaches you and I about this path that we've all experienced called temptation. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted by his own evil desire. Here we go. We're going to learn two things this morning about this path of temptation that we all experience, and then next week, we're going to learn about what is God's solution to this terrible horror called temptation to sin. James says, when tempted... Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, we all struggle with temptation. The Bible says it's common to all men. And this word for temptation has already been occurring in James chapter 1. We just probably haven't realized it yet. The Greek word here for temptation is the verb, the verb parasmos. Now, I want you to latch on to that. It should be up on the screen. It's the same word, and look at your text, verse 3, where it says, the testing of your faith. Actually, verse 2, I'm sorry. When you face trials, it's that same Greek word. And in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So the word trial and the word temptation that we're looking at this morning all comes from the same Greek word called parasmos. 
Now, this word can be used for trial or temptation because the main difference, listen, is in yours and my response to it. You see, if we respond to parasmos in faithful obedience to God, we endure a trial. But if we succumb to it in the flesh and we doubt God and we disobey, then we fall to temptation. It's the same Greek word. But James is using it. The translators of our Bibles have translated it differently because James now begins talking about temptation, whereas before he was talking about trials. See, he's been talking about how trials lead us to perfection, wisdom, and completion in our faith. But now he's beginning to look at the wrong responses to these same things that lead to our sin and eventual death if it's not checked. Look what he says in verse 13. No one should say, God is tempting me. See, James is now creating a foundation of theology. There's a lot of people in the day that James was writing this. Remember, he was writing to scattered Jewish believers around the world who were suffering wave after wave of trial, and many of them were forsaking God. Many of them were falling to temptation, and some of them were saying, why is God tempting us? And so James writes this response to those who are undergoing temptation. See, it's common to be tempted, and it's just as common that when undergoing temptation, we might even just a thought that goes through our mind, blame God for it. You know, Will Rogers once said that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. We like to pass the buck. Here's how it sounds. It's the other person's fault. Or I couldn't help it. Or everybody else is doing it. All my friends did the same thing. Why are you coming down on me? Or nobody's perfect. Or maybe the most famous, the devil made me do it. But when it comes to sin, James is emphatically laying out theology that says the source of sin is never God. Now listen, it's never Satan. It's never this world that we live in. It's never that bad friend. The source of sin is in my own heart. And it comes from the desires that rage within me. I once had a person who had an addiction tell me that God made his body with these supercharged desires. Therefore, it wasn't his fault that he was struggling with pornography. You see, when Adam, this is age old. How's this for a Father's Day message? This tendency came from the first father. When Adam was confronted by God in the garden, you remember what Adam uh, said, right? Here it is. The woman, you, God, put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So, So Adam is blaming God for this temptation. Adam is blaming God for his sin. James says that no one should say that God is soliciting me to evil. God cannot solicit anyone to evil because, listen, if God could do that, that means that God must have evil inside of him. See, God is holy, which means 
He is utterly without sin, pure and undefiled. Nothing is in his heart for sin to grab hold of. You see, sin grabs hold of the desires that are already in your heart and my heart, and it begins to pull them out. I want you to look at it this way. And God in his holiness, God in his lack of sinfulness, it is like a mountain climber who comes to an infinitely high vertical wall made out of the most pure, smooth glass. There's no purchase. There's no crag to put your fingertips on. There's no ledge to climb up. There's nothing to grab in order to climb. You see, God, sin comes against God and it finds absolutely nothing to gain purchase in. Because there's no sinfulness, no evil in God. So James is saying this holy God is utterly unable to tempt you. It says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. This phrase, cannot be tempted, occurs only once in the entire New Testament. And it's right here. It literally means God is untemptable. The nature of evil is inherently foreign to God. He is entirely invulnerable to it. Now, this is striking, friends, when you understand that James is writing to believers that live in a Roman world that have synthesized Greek and Roman religion. So they have hundreds and hundreds of these gods and goddesses and Roman and Greek gods and goddesses were known for being immature, capricious and entirely unpredictable. But the Christian's God, James says, is proclaimed to be holy, holy, holy. There is no sin in him. He cannot sin. He's untemptable. And because he's untemptable, he is utterly unable to give anybody a solicitation to evil. Habakkuk declares this. He says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Genesis 22, God does, we learn, it. He does sometimes test His people. But He never tempts them. He says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. But somebody might say, well, listen, what about that time with David in 2 Samuel 24? It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. See, God can tempt. God can solicit to evil. It's right there, some might say. Until you go over to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, and it says this, Satan rose up against Israel. Satan incited David to take a census of Israel. And what we learn when Scripture responds to Scripture is that God's not the one that sent and solicited evil from David. Satan did. God allowed it to occur, and it was a test for David. The same with Job. You see this, listen friends, this is the truth. This is the theology in this verse that we've got to anchor in your minds. When God is the agent, when God is the force, the person behind it, parasmos, our word for temptation or trial, is for the purpose of proving someone. 
Never for the purpose of causing him to fall. However, and there's never an exception in all of Scripture, if it is the devil who is tempting, then it's always for the purpose of causing someone to fall. So we got we have God who uses parasmos to authenticate our faith, to prove our faith, to make us stand stronger in our faith. But then you've got Satan who does parasmos, brings him against us in order to disprove our faith and make us fall. Now, if you're alert and if you're taking notes, then you'll remember that what we've just talked about, what James is laying out in this verse is the source of temptation. And the source is not God, not Satan, not the world. It's us. And it's our own desires. Here we go. I'm going to teach you five D's of temptation as we go to number two in the path of temptation. Let's look it up in verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived my dear brothers, James is packing this with helpful, applicable understanding of what's happening in our hearts when temptation comes. Here we go. Number one, the first D, desire. You see, since God cannot be the source of temptation, then who is? And James answers it. He says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. The, the source James says, is ourselves. Sin is never the fault of anyone but ourselves. We don't like to hear that. But it's the truth. It's not Satan. It's not our friends. It's not the world. It's not the circumstances. It's not that, that pile up on 78 when you're late for a very important sales meeting. It's not their fault. It's your own fault for slamming the dash. It's your own fault for questioning God why this. This comes from the desire in your heart. Your desire was that you make it to that meeting. That's a great desire. Until something, parasmos, comes against it. And now your desire is, I must get to the meeting. I have to get to the meeting. My career depends on me getting to the meeting. And meanwhile, where's faith? Now that godly desire to do a good job at that meeting and be successful for your company to the glory of God reveals itself to really be about me. I have got to get to that meeting. And if I don't get to the meeting, then I'm an utter failure. I'm in your imagine, your imagination takes it. Sin comes from one source. It's ourselves. Specifically, James says, it's our desires. Temptation begins primarily with a longing or a feeling or a desire for something. Now, I want to teach you this because it's easy to get out of whack with this. Desire can be portrayed in a very good sense in the scriptures. This is why I try to use that illustration. Getting to your meeting is a good desire. Doing a good job and being successful, that could be a good desire. Luke 22 says, and he said to them, this is Jesus, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus had desires. We have desires. And at some level, these desires are pleasing. They're beautiful. But Scripture very often puts desires in the utter clarity of truth and reveals them 
in a, in a bad way. Here's what it says in 1 John. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, those are desire terms, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, desire is the thriving. Now get this. Desire is the thriving, grasping, and demanding river that flows through our hearts. You and I were created to desire, but the sinful nature corrupts that creation and mutates these desires in every one of us. You might be familiar with the synonyms of desire. Here we are. Longing, craving, lusting, demanding. They're all the same thing. They're just different levels. For instance, you and I were created with a desire to enjoy relationships Husbands and wives, you're created with by God because you are an imager of God. You are created to want relationships, no, no, no matter how extroverted or introverted you may be. You are created to want and thrive in relationships. But when we need to control those relationships, then desire has run amok in us. What was a right desire becomes a bad desire. So James starts out teaching us a path of temptation. And number one was desire. He goes on to deception. Look what he says. By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. You see, temptation always progresses. Friends, you'll never experience a temptation that, that becomes or slips into neutral. Temptations drive. Temptations are dynamic. Temptations are alive because they're grabbing hold of desires in our hearts that are anything but neutral. Have you ever longed for something that you really couldn't afford, but you wanted it? And then you began thinking intensely about it. And you began doing the research. And you got on the internet. And you scoured eBay. And you, uh, you uh, looked at all the cheapest ways to get it. And all of a sudden, that price becomes affordable. And the purchase justifiable. You're in the second stage of temptation at that point. It's called deception. You see, James says this. He uses a phrase, dragged away. By the way, friends, this is a hunting term. All you robust, manly men and tough women who hunt, this is a hunting term in the Greek, and it means this, a baited trap. I want you to think of that. This dragged away means a baited trap, which is used to lure animals into it. Literally, literally, this is what it means. It means to draw or drag out forcefully Something from safety in order to capture it. That's what it literally means. It means to drag by force so as you, so, so that you can capture it. James uses another term. This is a fishing term. Fishermen use this term. Enticed. It literally means taken with a bait. Now listen. The enticement is the bait that hides the hook which lures us along in sin. Now think about this with me. I want you to think of Lot from the Old Testament. Lot would never have moved towards Sodom, which was filled with wicked people. He never would have moved towards Sodom if he had not seen what the Scripture says. Now listen, the well-watered plains of Jordan. And if he would have seen through that to the 
to the end of the temptation and the death of his wife, he never ever would have gone to Sodom. David would never have fallen for that alluring moment when Bathsheba was on the roof of a house nearby bathing. He never would have fallen for that temptation if he would have seen through the temptation to the hook that leads to the death of his own son. You see, temptation or enticement hides the hook with a bait. It works because the desire within us lusts for it. And it deceives us thinking that this is what I need. This will bring me joy. This is what I really, really want. And if I get it, I'll be happy and satisfied. I'll never want again. This will complete who I am. That's the bait that hides the hook. And the lure, maybe that photo or that video or that internet site, that promise of money, that drug, that sweet morsel of gossip that just seems to go down oh so smooth. Or that critical conversation that pumps you up with power and righteous indignation while you're bringing out the faults of the other person. All of these lures draw out the desire that's already in your heart and already in my heart. And at this point, the life of sin, friends, listen, it is conceiving a life and it's starting to form and to grow. There's no longer a right and a pure desire for that thing. It now becomes a fixation and what the Bible calls false worship or idolatry. Listen to this. This is from Thomas Akempis from his imitation of Christ. He writes this at first temptation is a mere thought confronting the mind. Now put yourself in this. But then imagination paints it in stronger colors. Only after that do we take pleasure in it. And the will makes a false move towards it. And we give our assent of it. But there's a third course in this path of temptation. And it's called design. These are the five D's. James says, then after desire has conceived. You see, the desire now has grown beyond godly proportion. The desire that might have been right is now no longer right. You're lusting after it. We're craving it. The mind has become fixed on it. And now a plan begins to form. We've justified. We've rationalized why we can get this now. And we make the conscious decision to then act on it. You see, this stage involves the will. And it's where most of the guilt lies. This is the pursuit stage. You see the lure with that fishing illustration. The lure has passed over the fish. The fish has wanted that lure. The bait has hidden the hooks. And it's begun to be enticed and dragged away. And it's begun to follow the lure. And then thinking that this is the right thing for it to do. It launches its attack. And at that point it's caught. What we once knew was wrong now looks right. It's the deception design phase. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, sa Bonhoeffer says. This is one of my favorite uh, understandings of temptation, how it works. He says this, With irresistible power, desire, which is in every one of us, seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy 
in God is extinguished. And we seek all our joy in the creature. What he's, what he's saying is this. When we begin to be enticed and dragged away and that temptation is now formulated in our mind justification for why it's okay for us to go after the created thing rather than the creator, idolatry is now in place. False worship is occurring. He says this. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. Friends, do you understand this? This speaks to me. This is what I feel. And only desire for the creature, for that thing, that object is real. And listen, he says this. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God. You ready? But with forgetfulness of God. The lust that is aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination being able to tell between what is right and what is wrong and of decision are taken from us. A question presents themselves is what the flesh desires really sin. Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, even expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease my desire. Surely God wants me to be happy. And it's here that he says everything within me rises up against the word of God. Wow. James goes on, and I told you, I told the first service, or maybe it was you, there's, I had bad news this morning, I had worse news, and I have good news. The bad news is Wawa is completely out of coffee, their water doesn't work. Okay, that is true. Neither do their fountain soda drinks. The worst news is we're going to be dealing with what's in place in every one of us this morning, and it's ugly. But the good news is next week we're going to see what God has for a solution to this problem. But before we do, we've got two more stages. Number four, disobedience. James says it gives birth to sin. See, if the course of temptation, if this path of temptation is not stopped, then the design inevitably leads to disobedience and the birth of sin. What was desired, and everybody listen, this is so important. What was desired rationalized, and then willed is actually accomplished. Desire leads to deception, which leads to design, and design to disobedience, which is sin. Now, let me tell you this. The earlier that you and I learn to resist temptation, the greater the likelihood of avoiding sin. But the longer we delay in resisting, the more likely the actual sin is. Fifth is death. And sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. You see, friends, listen, you know what full-grown sin is? It's a fixed habit that dominates our lives. I'd be an absolute idiot to think that not one person in this room is struggling with a habitual temptation. You see, in sin, when it is full-grown, when it becomes a habitual cycle of sin... And enjoyable gives birth to death. In other words, Paul says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. While Christians, we're not going to suffer spiritual or eternal death. But if a Christian persists in sin, he may pay the penalty of physical death. Whatever John meant in his epistle, he was serious when he wrote, There is a sin that leads to death. John's writing to believers. 
Paul writes of those believers who were eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you, and this is a euphemism for death, have fallen asleep. In Timothy, we see that some had rejected faith, a good conscience, and it says that they shipwrecked their faith. Sin, when it is full grown in some way, and I do not claim to fully understand it, but in some way brings death. Paul even sternly advises pastors and elders to hand over to Satan, the one in their congregation who was engaged in willful public sexual sin. He said, hand them over to Satan so that his sinful nature would be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Full-grown sin in the believer's life is an abomination to the child of God. You can't blame others. You can't blame God. This is why James says, look at verse 16, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. He's not launching the next few verses. He's summing up what he just said. Do not be deceived, my brothers. God is not at fault. Take responsibility. Put the blame on yourselves for your own sin. That's where it belongs. The problem is within me and my heart. I have desires, and many of them good. You have them too, but they grow greater than they ever should. God, who should be my delight, gets replaced with something else. My mind, fueled by these illicit desires, rationalizes and justifies them. And friends, at that point, I forget God, and I make my own plans for worship. But now I'm worshiping the creature and not the creator. And I make my choice and reach for that illicit fruit, just like you do. And sin is conceived, and if I allow it to grow fully, a vice-like, willfully enjoyed habit prisons me and results in some sort of death. But praise God, He's given us a solution for this. For this. And this is what we're going to look at next week. But friends, I want to close this morning as I did in the first service. And I'm going to ask you to be absolutely courageous. Let me tell you this, and please write it down. If you're on that path of temptation, and you're closing in on full-grown sin, I'm going to tell you right now, and it's thoroughly biblical, you will never, ever come out of it yourself. God must bring you out of it. And the way that God brings us out of sin is when we deprivatize it and we bring the community to bear in strengthening us. And so when we do an invitation, I'm not at all interested in you closing your eyes. I want you to see who comes down, not so that you can formulate your judgments and try to imagine and guess what sin it is that they're struggling with, but so that you can pray and be the redemptive community that you need to be. I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you're struggling with a sin this morning and you cannot break it, I'm going to ask you to be courageous, that your pride will glue you to your seat. I guarantee it has done it with me. But I'm going to ask you to break that glue and stand up and come down. And I'm going to ask if people come down, that some of our elders and their wives come down. And we're going to pray for you. Because it's time to get free. You cannot keep living in this dungeon. So who's going to be first? We had a lot of people come down first service. Who's going to come down and be honest? I want you guys to be free. I want to be free. Dave, come on down. Gary, Sharon, come on down. Some of you to pray. 
with these people that come down. Just stand up. Don't let pride keep you from coming down. Why? Wait a little bit. If you're struggling with a sin, friends, just, just get up and come down. Don't deprivatize, deprivatize that. Don't be private about it. For those of you who aren't coming down, now you know who to pray for. You don't need to guess what it is I'm struggling with. All you need to do is pray that God will interrupt by grace, and we'll see it next week, this path of temptation. And give them the freedom that they want so badly. And wait about another 20 seconds. Anybody else? Are you fighting with God in your heart? I know how that feels. If you are, he's trying to tell you to get up, come down. Elders and wives, I want you to find somebody. I want you to, to uh, get with them and pray with them while I and my uh, brothers and sisters in these pews pray for you. But go ahead and find somebody right now. And you don't need to confess that sin to them, but we need to pray for you. So you guys start finding some people, and I'm going to pray with my brothers and sisters out here for them. Let's pray, guys. Heavenly Father, these are real people who are making real redemptive decisions this morning. Lord, we all know what it feels like to struggle with sin. But Lord, I think your word was serious. When it talks about a sin that leads to death, we don't want that vice-like habit in our lives. Lord, rescue them. Give them strength. Give them freedom. Let them go to the community of God for help. Lord, I pray that you would take their desires and that you would plant those right on you. Your word says, delight yourself in the Lord and you will give us the desires of our heart. Lord, may we delight in you. May we flee and resist temptation. We've got to endure trials, but Lord, may we learn to resist temptation and flee to you. Lord, I pray for victory. Please, God, please free them. Let this be such a, a turning point in their lives where they sense somehow that they are freed this morning. And Lord, may they stay free to be able to live a life of victory and joy and freedom in Christ. That's my prayer. Lord, you know that I've met with many people. You know millions and millions who hate their sin but just can't seem to get out of it. Lord, give them freedom this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.